Welcome to Rants and Reason. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I am a liberal. And I am a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies. We are friends. We are friends. How are you, Karen? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Chuck? I am doing very well. Good. Good. Got anything you want to rant about? I do. All right. Strangely enough, it. it's about the Roseanne thing. And okay. I, lots of people are ranting about this. Yes. Here is my problem. Mm-hmm. Is that she apologized today, but said, I'm sorry that so many people, mostly liberals, lost their job. <laughs> it was, it, first of all, it was stupid. But mm-hmm. she has to throw in, oh, look, by punishing me, you're hurting all these liberals. Doesn't matter. I, no, she, it doesn't. She's just it's- that person who can't own what she does. I hate people who can't own what they do. I know. That drives me crazy, too. I do plenty of stupid things. Mm-hmm. You do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've done I'm a number kidding. of stupid things, but just own what you do. Don't blame <laughs> right. other people for it. Right, right. Like conservatives didn't think that was pretty abhorrent, too. Right, right. No, I mean, I I know that I believed that what happened to her show is exactly what should have happened, so... I didn't watch any of the new episodes. I didn't like the old ones, so. Yeah, I was never a huge, huge fan either, but I do know that it seemed the new episodes seemed to be resonating with both groups of people, you know, from people on both sides of the aisle. And anytime something can do that, that's a good thing. It's really too bad that her own personal stuff, you know, um, that she felt like she could say that. I mean, that's just a really terrible thing to say. I I don't understand well, how anybody could do that. The makers of Ambien had to come out today and say one of the side effects is not racism. <laughs> I mean, they actually said that one of the side effects is not racism. <sighs> so that's my rant. I'm done. That's crazy. Well, speaking of owning stuff, I have to own the fact that I was a jerk today. This is my rant. To me. But it's also me owning that I was a jerk and I was super judgy. So I never get ice cream, right? Like I, I don't treat myself very often. And I did today. I got ice cream from a drive through place and I ordered it and I was very excited about it. And I was like, I do not want whipped cream. I don't like whipped cream on my Sundays because number one, it allows them to cheat and not give me enough ice cream. And number two, I just don't really love whipped cream. So I was like, no whipped cream. Pull up to the window. Very friendly. They repeat it back to me. Very friendly. Hand it to me. Guess what it has on it? Peanuts. Whipped cream. So, so much whipped cream. (sighs) Oh. So I was, I felt very, very angry towards that person, but that's okay. That's my rant for the day. If I say no whipped cream, damn it, I don't want whipped cream. Can I just say you live one charmed life? If that is your problem, <laughs> that you got too much whipped cream, you have it pretty good. Uh, yeah, I, I choose to be frustrated about that today. I don't, you know, real problems. I try not to think about those, but no whipped cream. Sometimes the not getting whipped cream is just, I would say the icing on the cake, but that seems like a bad choice right now Yeah. Yep. to say that the whipped cream on the Sunday. Sometimes it's just the whipped cream on the Sunday. It just pisses you off and it's just, that's it. And you're done. That's kind of where I'm at. Okay. Okay. All right. So that's my rant for the 
that's my rant for the day. Now let's get into things that are really important. <laughs> Not whipped cream. Um, today we're going to be talking about nationalism, which once we started researching more and more about this, this was like one of those black holes we fell into that was really, really hard to get out of, right? Yeah, oh, it was. It could, this is another one that could have been 20 pages. Right. Definitely. We hear the word nationalism and we tend to immediately picture white nationalist parades and tiki torches. And that is an ugly and disgusting manifestation of it. But it's not limited to that small horrific section of society. In fact, the core principles of nationalism are actually quite global. As we've seen in the case of the Texas school shooter's father, who has been reported to be a Greek nationalist, those same themes of nationalism carried over into his interpretation of President Trump's America First messaging. At first, there were a lot of confusing reports that maybe he was a white nationalist, but then upon further investigation, it was that he was a Greek nationalist, but he felt like he understood the America First messaging because of where he came from. Like his ideology actually matched our ideology, even though it was a totally different ethnicity. I thought that was pretty, pretty telling. Nationalism is very pervasive, and it tends to feed our base-level selves, which is really never a good thing. And nationalism also encompasses many aspects. It's not cut and dry. It's, it's actually likely that all of us are somewhat nationalist in one sense or another. And, in, okay, before we move forward, the first thing we have to do if we're going to discuss nationalism is we have to define it. Webster's Dictionary defines nationalism as loyalty and devotion to a nation, a sense of national consciousness, exalting one nation above all others, and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations or groups. That's where you can get confused with nationalism and patriotism. Right. Now, the terms nationalist and patriot, they're often used interchangeably, but it's really critical to note that the two words have very different meanings. And I think Orwell nailed it. He said it best when he wrote, Nationalism is not to be confused with patriotism. By patriotism, I mean devotion to a particular place and a particular way of life, which one believes to be best in the world. But, and here's the key, but has no wish to force on other people. Right. Patriotism is of its nature defensive, both militarily and culturally. Nationalism, on the other hand, is inseparable from the desire for power. The abiding purpose of every nationalist is to secure more power and more prestige, not for himself, but for the nation or other unit in which he has chosen to sink his own individuality. Now, Orwell also went on to say this about nationalism. Nationalism is power hunger tempered by self-deception. Every nationalist is capable of the most flagrant dishonesty. But he is also, since he is conscious of serving something bigger than himself, unshakably certain of being in the right. Senator John McCain also spoke about the difference between nationalism and patriotism. To fear the world that we have organized and led for three quarters of a century, to abandon the ideals we have advanced around the globe, 
to refuse the obligations of international leadership and our duty to remain the last best hope of earth for the sake of some half-baked, spurious nationalism cooked up by people who would rather find scapegoats than solve problems, is as unpatriotic as an attachment to any other tired dogma of the past that Americans consign to the ash heap of history. Now, America's always prided itself on being a melting pot, accepting of anyone who is willing to accept this set of loosely defined American ideals. At least that's the story we tell ourselves. But shifting political winds have strained that notion, and nationalism is replacing patriotism. The melting pot has been put up on top of the cabinet to gather dust, and walls, real and perceived, are now shaping our national landscape. There's a lot of serious problems with nationalism. Nationalism, especially ethnic nationalism, at its core is separation. It's about insulation and fear, as well as a desire for power and a belief that one is superior for a given reason, be it ethnicity, race, religion, or creed. The idea that one is better than another is used to create, start, maintain, and promote acts of hate and different types of violence and ultimately war. Nationalism does create bonds, and these bonds can be manipulated for good or for evil, but all too often it veers to the negative. These bonds can create the concept of the other, which is anyone not within the bonded group. Another dangerous aspect to nationalism is that it can exist without critical thinking. It is this ingraining aspect that makes nationalism so difficult to root out. Nationalism also chips away at individuality. One just becomes a cog in a machine. But on the flip side, uniting different groups of people under a common banner, it can create sources of individual investment that can allow a person to really feel like they're a part of the community. But the question is, at what cost? Also, nationalism can be a tool of manipulation by the leader of a nation, and that can lead to horrific consequences. The worst, most obvious example is that of the Holocaust, which sprang directly from German nationalism. Now, there are many types of nationalism, but basically they're split into two main groups, civic and ethnic. With civic, civic nationalism unites people based on shared values without regard to ethnicity, race, color, religion, gender, or language. Citizens unite under the common bonds of choice, law, liberty, and a sense that the individual built the nation. Several subtypes of nationalism spring out of civic nationalism. Humanitarian nationalism. Now, that's an outgrowth of Enlightenment philosophy. And you know I love Enlightenment philosophy. Influence by Rousseau and others who all emphasize local self-rule through democratic forms of government based on the peculiar characteristics of each nation. Now, the theory believes that humans are divided into natural groups, each having a separate identity, but with the view that the world as a whole is a collection of these sovereign nations. Humanitarian nationalists believe that this organization of people would further the cause of peace, prosperity, development, and cooperation. 
the presence of cultural and political unity in democratic nation states would make war irrational and subjugation of one nation by another impractical. Subscribers perceive nationalism as a source of mutual respect, brotherhood, trust, and friendship. Right, which sounds lovely, but it's also kind of idealistic because you're depending on other nations to feel the same way, correct? Yeah, you're taking human nature and having really the wrong view of human nature. I just think it's... I think it's idealistic, but yeah. next we have tr- traditional nationalism falls under the civic uh, umbrella. Tra- traditional nationalism does not demand that a nation exclude all foreigners. In fact, it embraces immigration. Traditional nationalism does not have its hands tied by a deterministic obsession with race. It has the resilience to be able to enrich itself with what it calls the right kind of immigrant while rejecting the globalistic open borders fanaticism, which demands that Western nations allow the mass migration of culturally and socially hostile foreigners into their society. This is this is something actually Trump talked about President Trump a little bit when he said the good immigrants. He actually used that term. Remember when he was talking? Why don't we get more of the Nordic people? Um, and it's <laughs> right. Kind of right. Because they don't well, want to come de- here. They have no reason it, to flee. It it all depends on what someone is viewing as the right type of immigrant. I mean, are they are they basing that on merit? Or are they basing that on race? I mean, I think that that's that has a big part to play in in how right or wrong that that ideology. Well, is. one of the things we kid about ourselves in this country though is that we have always been so welcome to immigrants. We really right. haven't. I mean, my, <laughs> exactly. you know, my family's Irish. We weren't especially friendly to the Irish. We weren't especially, we limited the number of Jewish people that could come here in World right. War II. Mm-hmm. Just any group that comes in that changes things, especially the Irish, because they came in such large numbers that they changed the population numbers. Right. Right. There's always an influx. And when there's an influx, there's always a backlash. And I think we're kind of dealing with the backlash right now. And it's really, really ugly. But I'm wondering if it's not just going to cycle back like it always does the next generation. But at its core, traditional nationalism is conventionally understood to refer to the belief that a nation should be able to exist independently, apart from the domination of other countries, and that the good of man should be placed ahead of international or global concern. I really think that most establishment Republicans kind of have this thought process, this type of nationalism. Well, I will talk about liberal nationalism. Now, this is also even though it's also even though that's not really political party, but yeah, go ahead. It's also known as civic or economical. Nationalism. Now, the term liberal here does not mean what is commonly thought of today. To to explain this, let's let's go into the historical definition of liberalism. Karen, the term liberalism comes from the Latin term liber, which means free, because liberals love free stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Politically, liberalism emphasizes the role of government. In an ideological sense, liberalism stands for freedom and equality under the law. But economically, liberalism stood for a free market and abolition of state-imposed regulations that would hinder the movement of goods and capital. 
Steve- that's how you know that it that it's definitely not the political aspect <laughs> right. of liberal. <laughs> yeah. Now you heard about everyone knows Steve Bannon and everyone talked about him being a, a white nationalist. That in fact what he was was an economic nationalist. Right. And and he's really the one who who kind of provided uh President Trump with the blueprint for mm-hmm. economic nationalism. And right. and that became that resonated with many, many people. So economic nationalism emphasizes the absolute sovereignty of the nation state. And think about President Trump saying, we're going to get out of NAFTA. We're going to tear up these treaties. We're going to do this. You know, that's one of the things he did was he emphasized our absolute sovereignty. And that resonated with people. But in seeming contradiction, it also seeks to limit the power of the government to to interfere with individual liberty by proclaiming the goal of the state to be to protect individual liberty and provide public goods. Liberal nationalism comes closest to what a great majority of economists think of as the proper role of the state. Then we have integral nationalism, and this type of nationalism centers the nation and its state in the life of all citizens, instead of being committed to supplying public goods to people. This form of nationalism emphasizes individual sacrifice for the benefit of the nation and its government. The Latin root of nationalism is natio, meaning tribe or ethnic group, or division by birth, and it seeks to expand the state to include all ethnicities that are living in other territories. This is done through militarization. Hayes summarizes this form of nationalism as intensely anti-individualistic and anti-democratic, where all other loyalties are absorbed into loyalty to the nation-state. One example of civic nationalism gone wrong, Jackman nationalism. Now, that's a state ideology adopted by the revolutionary French government to solidify its hold on power. This is very, very much how this podcast is produced. (laughs) Its four characteristics are suspicion, intolerance of internal dissent, heavy reliance on force, and military force to attain government goals, fanatical support for the state. It also encompassed the tearing down of institutions. Now, that's kind of what we're seeing today, don't you think? It's our belief that what people want to see today is the tearing down of institutions because they don't trust them. I think there is like an undercurrent of a lot of these themes right now. A lot of suspicion of all the institutions and public servants. Um, the idea of revolution and, you know, draining the swamp, all of that. And I also think in in kind of throwing out um, military power, like talking about how powerful our military is and kind of reminding the way that the administration reminds of that. It's all of it together is it kind of has this feel sometimes. And I think that's what a lot of people are afraid of. But do you understand what I say when I say, you know, suspicion and tolerance of internal dissent, kind of when I make a suggestion for the, for the notes and heavy reliance on force and no soup for you. Yeah. And fanatical support of the screw of the notes. Oh Um, my goodness. But anyway, um, Let's move on to ethnic nationalism. I okay? never said that you, I never said that redress for grievances was allowed here. <laughs> no, you, well, I kind of assumed that, but I was 
deeply wrong. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about ethnic nationalism, which is the definite ugly side of nationalism. Ethnic nationalism is also known as ethno-nationalism, and it's a form of nationalism wherein the nation is defined by its ethnicity. The central theme of this type of nationalist is that you are defined by a shared heritage. This is often characterized by common roots or blood, inheritance, emotional attachment, unity by ascription. People don't really get to choose to live there. They're just born there and that's where they stay. Majority rule, fraternity, common faith, and language, and the idea that the nation shapes the individual, which is the exact opposite of civic nationalism, which believes that the individual shapes the nation. So it's, it's an exact contradiction to that. This type of nationalism can easily devolve into blatant separatist violence and even genocide. And it can also include these dangerous subgroups. And what we're fighting now and facing now is religious nationalism. And that can be viewed as a situation in which religion is used as a tool or veil to justify nationalistic attitudes and actions. Now, this is on the rise across the globe and is increasingly associated with religious terrorism. Right. And I think a lot of people will immediately think of Islamic governments, but from a global perspective, there are other religious powers that dominate countries. Right. And so um, it's we're not just talking about Islamic. Yeah, we're not just talking about ISIS. We're talking about anybody right. that decides to use that religion uses, to blow something right. up. Or that uses religion as their form of government. Yeah. So... Okay, we have expansionist nationalism, and that's an aggressive and radical form of nationalism that incorporates some patriotic sentiment with a belief in expansion. It's most associated with militarist governments during the 20th century, including fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and the Japanese Empire. What distinguishes expansionist nationalism from other types um, is its acceptance of chauvinism, a belief in superiority or dominance. Nations are thus not thought to be equal to their right to self-determination. Rather, nations are believed to possess characteristics or qualities that make them superior to others. Expansionist nationalism therefore asserts the state's right to increase its borders at the expense of its neighbors. So it's this type of nationalism that gives people the idea that they have the right to just expand their territory. Well, and that was basically a good example. Nazi Germany, Austria, right. Czechoslovakia, right. then Poland. Right. The idea of just because we're better, we can take your land. Right. Yeah. So there's so many different types of nationalism. Right. It's and and they're they're all on a scale. I mean, they're all on a spectrum. Um, for example, the integral nationalism. I mean, America to a degree unites under a common military, but we don't use that military in the way that a lot of nationalists would do to force allegiance to the state. You know, there's there's different levels that people have and I think that's really important to note. Well, let's talk about nationalism in the US. And, and again, we're not talking about white nationalists, we're just talking about right. overall nationalists. 
And our current president represents a radical shift in views from his predecessors. His election really was less surprising than it should have been. President Trump was elected by an overwhelming number of white working class voters. People on the Democratic side misread the weather on that. And uh, these voters found a voice that shared their concerns. And in a study done by the Public Religion Research Institute and Atlantic Magazine called Beyond Economics, Fears of Cultural Displacement Pushed the White Working Class to Trump, the findings could almost predict a Trump win with his message of Make America Great Again and a message of returning back to better days. Now, this message, when we're talking about this, Again, we're not talking about white nationalism and racism and things like that. It's this um, striving to want to go back. The world's changing around people. Right. And I mean, there is a definite racist oh, absolutely. element to that. Um, but I don't think it's an intentional racist element. I, I think it's just it's kind of what um, we've been discussing and had some discussions with some of the people in our in our Facebook group about is that there's privilege that we're not really aware that we have. And so when we're talking about going back to better days, it's we're looking at it from the perspective of our own. Well, when this was talking privilege. to the white working class. So and mm -hmm. now. Right. So they it's this fear of the world is changing around people and they're a little bit confused by it and they don't like it. And you, nobody really saw that coming. Trump was right. the antidote to that. He said, I'm going to really freeze time for you. I'm going to move you back in time to before right. NAFTA, before, you know, all these changes occurred before all the, the, all the globalization. Right. Mm -hmm. And before yeah. all the mega, we're going to get rid of all the Mexicans. You know, I mean, that was, right. that was a big thing. Well, although most attribute has went to economic anxiety, there's no doubt that Americans had suffered greatly under the great recession of 2008. And they had good reason to have a fair amount of economic anxiety. By the time of his election, the economy had recovered. However, the middle class, the white working class, had yet to see real economic gains, and many were extremely unhappy with their current situation. But that was not actually their overriding concern. The study found a number of factors that made President Trump's message effective. It was white working class voters that overwhelmingly supported the president and hear their views, according to the report. Notably, while only marginally significant, being in fair or poor financial shape actually predicted support for Hillary Clinton amongst white working class Americans rather than support for Donald Trump. Now that goes against the narrative the year over and over and over again. Right. White working class voters who say they often feel like a stranger in their own land and who believe the U.S. needs protecting against foreign influence were almost four times more likely to favor Trump than those who did not share those concerns. Nearly two-thirds of white working-class Americans believe American culture and way of life has deteriorated since the 1950s. You, you know what, when I see this, though, how many nursing homes did you go to to get that do this poll? I mean, yeah, it, I, I don't then know. if you were born in 1950, you would be 68 years old today. Well, I think a lot of it is from the perception on 
TV. Yeah, Leave It to Beaver and Lucy Mm -hmm. and things like Mayberry. Right, right. More than six in ten white working class Americans believe the growing number of newcomers from other countries threatens American culture, while three in ten say say these newcomers strengthen society. Six in ten white working class Americans say because things have gotten so far off track, we need a strong leader who is willing to break the rules. Despite the conventional wisdom that Trump attracted financially depressed voters, white working class Americans who report being in good or excellent financial shape are significantly more likely to say that the president understands their problems than those who report their financial condition as being fair or poor. A majority, 55% of white working class Americans in fair or poor shape say that Trump does not understand the problems facing their communities. So actually, these findings run counter to the economic anxiety model that is so often used to explain the president's unlikely election, right? right. I mean, yeah, that's what that's what we hear is that it's these poor people living in you know squalor that put him in power, but mm-hmm. really the people living in the suburbs with four bedroom houses. Felt that he understood their problems and people who really were not well off at all felt more like Hillary Clinton understood theirs. Right. One thing that I think is kind of interesting, I think a lot of people, when they hear these statistics, they immediately think that when people say they feel like a stranger in their own land, that they're talking about Mexican immigrants or that they're talking about um, just people of color in general. But I don't think that that's always the case. A lot of the smaller tourist areas that especially older people tend to go to have been recently, a lot of the small family-owned resorts and stuff have been sold to people from European countries, like, um, well, more the, like, Romania, um, Russia, things like that. You have people... Right. Eastern European cultures. And so I think that it makes people feel very uncomfortable when they're used to being like Bob and Jane owning the fishing resort in Branson. Instead, it's somebody with a name they can't pronounce who doesn't know them and doesn't know their family and who doesn't particularly seem to care about them on a personal level. I think that it's that just as much as it is everything else. I don't think it's necessarily about color. It's about culture. Well, I think the I, I think the bigger issue is that the world is just changing very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, know, you have the internet. You have just so many things that it makes the world move much faster. Right, and I think that people right. have a hard time adapting to that. Yeah, I agree. So, what do you? We've talked about what's going on in the U.S. What about globally? Well, globally now. Totalitarian nationalism is pretty extinct except for in North Korea where you have a ruling family that preaches this weird mixture of Marxism and racial purity and they enforce it with slave labor camps for dissidents. Nonetheless, it's clear that an exclusive, often ethnically based form of nationalism is on the rise. And democracy, it's a it's a vote getter. I mean, it's a very powerful vote winner and autocracies leaders use it to distract people from their lack of freedom and sometimes their lack of food yeah yeah 
Well, in Europe, the last 10 years have been very, very challenging. From the economic euro crisis in 2009 and the after effects of the Arab Spring in 2011, and then the peak of the Syrian refugee crisis in 2015, the governments of the EU are increasingly finding themselves in disagreement. Currently, nations are increasingly divided over immigration, with a strong nationalist movement emerging as many member states look to reclaim their sovereignty. In 2016, Britain voted to leave the Union, which, you know, leaves open the possibility that other states would follow. And with nationalism, xenophobia, and support for right-wing populist parties rising throughout Europe, it Europeans are now erecting barriers from Greece to Germany as member states have become overwhelmed with the influx and are having difficulties processing such large quantities of people. And this leaves many refugees stranded in very squalid conditions in makeshift camps all over Europe. But Europe's migrant crisis is dwarfed by the wave of displacement that has washed into Syria's neighbors. Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan alone host 4.4 million refugees from Syria. In Lebanon, they make up more than one-fifth of the population. And a lot of this nationalism, I, this is my own opinion, but I, I think that this kind of nationalism that you're seeing over there is about resources. Yeah. Right. When you have right. that many people flooding, not only is it going to change your culture, but there's only so much food to go around. Right. So people start to worry about resources. And when they start about start to worry about resources, they start to worry about their own circle. They don't care mm-hmm. about other groups. They care far less about other groups. If there were 100,000 refugees, they would be very they would take them in very happily. But with 4.4 million, that starts to strain things. And right. so, you know, it's it's not as cut and dry and right and wrong as people like to think. Right. And, yeah, exactly. And it, right. And it, I mean, it's, it kind of makes sense because when my husband and I fostered kids, I every time I got a call, I wanted to have my house full of kids. You know, I wanted to say yes with every call. But sometimes we had so many that it was affecting the kids that we adopted and I wasn't able to give them what I needed to give them. And it was very – I mean, it was heart-wrenching to say no, but sometimes I couldn't because I had to – I had to take care of what I was given first. And that that's a hard, hard thing to do. And it doesn't mean someone is cold or comp- it, uncompassionate. It It's just, it's very complicated. Right. And people, the thing that gets lost in the shuffle is that while we have a terrible, terrible, terrible immigration system, a path to citizenship, mm-hmm. the United States has taken an incredible amount of refugees in. Right. Right. And we're not saying that we shouldn't take more in. We're just making that point. Right. Um, yeah, it's not so. like we've turned turned everybody away. We have taken in right. a, an incredible amount from all over the world. Right. Um, Partially, it's the rhetoric that's coming from this administration. And what may come in the future, it, it, you know, is, is a definite problem. But the rhetoric is so cold and, and uncaring. And I think that that is what is so incredibly disturbing because it's people are starting to repeat it and on an individual basis when they start believing that about immigrants right that's when you have the the one-on-one problems that yes create such painful scenarios right and you look at turkey i mean they're undergoing a very nationalistic wave 
led by President Erdogan. Doesn't that just sound like a villain in some it just movie? Lord of the Rings, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this new nationalism in Turkey, it's they have a real hostility toward the West, particularly the US, uh, but also Germany and and all of Europe. And correlated to that, there's this widespread hostility towards Syrian refugees and to a large extent other immigrants that come to Turkey. As the economic crisis has stripped Greek institutions of trust, that resentment is metastasized into outright fear that is defining mainstream political and social debate. And this group, Golden Dawn, that we're talking about, they are so similar to the Nazis in so many ways. Right, right. And that's actually in my in the introduction where we were talking about the Texas school shooting and the father of the, of the kid. We don't know any details about that. Um, I just read some reports that not necessarily linked him to Golden Dawn specifically, but that there was some sympathy for the nationalistic aspects of what's happening in Greece. Right. So where world another place that you see nationalism in, is in Russia and that really comes directly from Putin and the humiliation he still feels over the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he has this desire to make the Soviets a credible superpower, and he's leaning to imperial nationalism, right. you know, taking over right. Ukraine, things like that, Georgia, Chechnya. And, nas and nationalism is such a big issue even in other places like Africa. You know, there's uprisings within their own countries because of nationalism i mean we're seeing it all over right it's and in, it leads to in europe ethnic cleansing at its worst it is what it does right right genocide yeah um it's, it's just it's a massive problem we need to have i think a, a bigger picture kind of widen our scope when we talk about nationalism I really think overall, it seems that um, most people are just afraid of losing their historical culture to newcomers. To older generations, this is especially troubling because they're really already facing fears of feeling like they no longer have a purpose. And instead of just writing those concerns off as limited thinking or racism, perhaps we should all explore ways to weave in the fabric of new immigrant cultures into the framework of our own cultures. Honestly, you know, in America, it's hard to even see how ethnic nationalism can even exist because the founding principles of our country defy the very idea of ethnic separation when a cornerstone of our country is e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Trying to cling on to some type of ethnic pride is really just a bubble encasing nothing. Civic nationalism has its place, but it has to be kept in balance. I just I have to say, though, if someone says that they're patriotic and then they take on a us against them approach of integrating immigrants into America, then they really, really never understood what made this country great to begin with. They do not. And that is all we have to say about that. Yes. We would like to thank everyone who takes the time to listen to us. You can always find us on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. We would also really, really appreciate you dropping us a positive review. And we're trying – I've seen where people have asked where they're supposed to put reviews that don't – if they don't have iTunes – 
And I'm not really sure. Um, We're still trying to figure that out. And I will let you know. I think that there might be a way we can do a rating on our page. And we'll we'll try to figure that out for those that asked. So We do have a pretty active Facebook group if you'd like to join you can find us on facebook at rants and reason podcast facebook group we'd like to thank the moderators for everything they do there you really really help us out you guys rock um you can follow us on twitter at rants reason and if you would like to help us off if you would like to help us offset costs of the show we do have a patreon page you can find us on patreon as rancy and reason we also want you to know that we appreciate all the support that you provide such as word of mouth recommendations shares on social media and any reviews and we do appreciate all of our patreon sponsors and that's we do. Jennifer and Anon Steven even though these people all voted against me tonight Ben Fenton from They Walk Among Us and Jeremy from Podcasts We Listen To. Timmy, Austin, I love Austin. John Payne, Weekly Wrap-Up. Tony Carr, my Irish buddy from Lipstick, Heels, and Western Zeal. Michelle Johns, really like to thank Alicia Wolf for all the social media support she gives us. Yes. And she also sends us tons of memes she for does. Me Monday she to help us does. build that up. So we really appreciate you, Alicia. Thank you. All right, here we are at our unlikely friends, which yeah, just I move won forward, the please, poll tonight. Move. No, I'm sure all of you are shocked, our, our dedicated listeners that know what we're talking about here. I, I'm sure all of you were shocked that I was the one that wanted to keep the unlikely friends and Chuck did not, which shows that I, the conservative, have the more giving heart and, and the heart that is able to feel love towards others. I like to hear happy stories of people who get along, unlike grumpy, curmudgeon-y people who only want <laughs> sadness and despair. I, you know, I'm just tired of your little fairy tales and happy endings. That's all. <laughs> well. So tell um, me another fairy tale. Let me sit back and. Okay. It's not a fairy tale. They're all happy endings. You know what? People make their own happy endings, Chuck Walters. There are some people who can just sit in the pet pit of despair and just be like oh why why me and then there are people that figure out how to build a ladder and get out of their pit yeah just move forward please <laughs> okay well at first glance it looks once like upon a time <sighs> it looks like two guys are enjoying a beer together at a local restaurant in Columbia, South Carolina. But they aren't just two guys. They're the Democratic and Republican State Party chair people. And in this state, which is better known for its bare-knuckle politics, Jamie Harrison and Matt Moore have found a way to become friends. National candidates may hurl insults across party lines, but Harrison and Moore enjoy an unusual rapport in the world of dirty politics. I do think some people find our friendship a little bit strange, says Moore, as Harrison chuckles in agreement when the two sat down recently in South Carolina State House. They've been friends for several years. Moore points out that few people understand what it's like to be a chairman of a political party, especially one in such an important primary state. It just so happens that in this case, it's the other political party, Moore acknowledges. They also say they share personal stories, less than ideal upbringings. And that was actually kind of what brought us to where we are. Wouldn't you say that, Chuck, that we realized we came from similar Very similar backgrounds, backgrounds? yeah. Yeah, and I think that that made us realize um, kind of 
that we're way more the same than we realized. And that's what sparked this whole thing. Yeah, now, so now I'm that. starting to realize how much different we are, but go ahead. <laughs> You're hurting my feelings. No, I mean, we're very, very similar, but I don't like fairy tales. Moore says that he grew up in a trailer park in Georgia, and Harrison recalls being raised by a single mom in a working-class poor household. The synergy of rising up to take part of the American dream was part of what we both shared, Harrison said. They've carried their cross-party friendship into a class that they taught together last fall at the University of South Carolina, and they have laid partisan politics aside occasionally at work, too. In the background of historic photos of Governor Nikki Haley signing a bill to remove the Confederate flag from the State House grounds, the chairman stands shoulder to shoulder looking down approvingly. Another issue in which they find common ground is on criminal justice reform. Two weeks ago, Matt and I visited a prison here in Columbia, and it weighed on me so much the entire time, Harrison said. Moore agrees that it is one of the few areas right now in the country where there is bipartisan agreement. I think criminal justice reform and sentencing reform are the defining civil rights struggle of the 21st century. It's not a Republican or a Democrat issue. It's a policy issue. It's an American issue. We'll fight when necessary, but I'm still as conservative as ever, Moore says. But in the meantime, they'll continue to bond over a shared love of striped socks, the Constitution, and politics. If they can do it, we can too. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.